Okay, so we are wrapping up the tabernacle uh, with our series this morning, and um, uh, I, I will tell you, <clears throat> this has been, even over the last 48 hours, God has really worked me over um, on a lot of different things in my own life. Um, there's just been a lot of things that have been going on in my heart personally, and I've been looking forward to teaching teaching this one and working through it because it's really the culmination of everything that we've been talking about so far uh, with the tabernacle and really furnishing a proper dwelling place for the Lord. Because here's the reality. So it's going to be kind of a bit of a review. We're going to be working through it, but then we're going to be talking about uh, the ark and we're talking about the mercy seat and there's some details in there. Um, But again, you guys are the temple of the Holy Ghost. Where's that found? 1 Corinthians 6. Yes. If you want to take it in 17 through 20, I love those passages. It just talks about how you are the temple of the Holy Ghost. You are the tabernacle. You are the place where God desires to dwell. Have you ever just sat and thought about that for a minute? Like God wants to dwell in you and with you and be with you. That is absolutely incredible. That is absolutely incredible. There are so many people that follow a religion where they worship a God that is afar off. A God that can't, um, you really can't relate to, you really can't talk to. But God wants to be that close to you that He actually resides inside of you. That's in, that is absolutely incredible. And on the flip side, when we sin, when I sin, I bring God right along with me. And how terrible that is. And that's something that God's really just been... I mean, I, I've, I've gone through that before, and I've been thinking about that, and, and, I've, and God's taught me those things. But it's just a reminder over the course of the last couple of days of, of how I need to treat the Lord better. You know, when it comes to His temple, His tabernacle, where He wants to dwell, I, want, I need to treat Him better. I should appreciate Him more. I should give Him a place that is proper for Him to, to be. Um, when you have people over, you know, we, we tend to clean house and reorganize and make things look nice and spend time to make a nice meal and, and make sure everything is smelling great. You don't want them walking into the door and it smells like a garbage heap. And so when it comes to God, why would we not want to do the same thing in our tabernacle, in the place where He desires to dwell? This is His house. Your body is His house. And so this whole study, I hope, has been something to cause you to think a little bit about your life. And if not, maybe today would be that day. Because this, this is something that I want to, as we kind of walk through this, and we re- review a little bit, and we talk about the Ark of the Covenant and the Mercy Seat. This part, the most holy place, like the, the inside of the inside, the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant and the Mercy Seat exists, this is where God ultimately purchased your redemption. This is where he did business between him and God the Father in order to secure your eternity. So this part of the tabernacle really belongs to Jesus and God the Father alone, but it's in the very core of who you are. And the nation of Israel, as far as the people, and we're going to talk about this, the people never went into the most holy place. They didn't go there. That was only for the high priest. And we're going to talk about the high priest and how he was selected and the roles that he played and what he did. But this is very unique. And so this is something where Jesus, as our high priest, has gone into the most holy place, the very inner part of you. And he has, uh, he has shed his blood and he has atoned the, very, the most intimate, internal part of who you are between him and God alone. That is incredible. Because I know who I am deep down. I can put on a good front. I can put on a nice suit, you know, and I can look all spiffy. 
But I know what's in here. I know who I am. I'm rotten on the inside. And we all are. And the fact that God would do this for us is just incredible. It is absolutely incredible. So I want to hit, hit into this as, as uh, finishing up the series and really, I want to find it interesting. I want to go into it, but I want to start just kind of hitting some of these points of the heart this morning because I really think that we need to learn how to appreciate God a lot more. All right, so the most holy place. So let's talk about this. We got our ark. So we got the, uh, the tabernacle here. It keeps going way. I'm clicking way too fast. My apologies. All right. So we've got our, our tabernacle here. Somebody walk me through it. What do we got? I'm going to draw it on the board as well. But what do we got? Let's kick it off. Do some review for me. Come on. The brazen altar at the entrance. The brazen labor. All right. You're going way too fast, dude. All right. So we got the entrance. And then we got the first one. Go ahead. Brazen altar. Brazen altar. What happened there? Sacrifice for your sins. Yeah, all sacrifices happen at the brazen altar. It was made of brass, which is a picture of judgment. judgment. What's the dimensions of it? Five by five, which is the number of death. Five is the number of death in the Bible. You have a brazen grate in the midst of it. Remember how high it was? Anyone remember? Nope. One and a half cubits. One and a half cubits. And that was important with the other parts of the tabernacle. Okay. So this is the place where they would come and they would shed the blood of their sacrifices. They would sprinkle it around the altar and they would place certain parts of it on here. Other parts they'd carry outside the camp. But this is where all sacrifices took place. All of them. The burnt offering. The peace offering. Uh, the sin offering. Everything would happen at this place. Very, very, very important. And what about the fire? It never went out. It was to always be burning. Always, 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 always. Good. Next, we got the brazen labor. And what's the point of this one? Yeah. So to wash your hands and your feet, and it also had like a mirror, so you could like look to see where. Yeah. Yep. And so it's mainly for the priests because as they would travel back and forth between the holy place and the most holy place, they would they were commanded by God to wash their hands and feet as they went this direction to help with the sacrifices, and they were supposed to wash their hands and their feet when they came back in this direction. So what is this a picture of? Good. You can say it. You mouthed it. <laughs> Sanctification. Sanctification. How are you sanctified? How do you set yourself apart? I'll just drink my coffee while. Go ahead. By reading your Bible and yeah, reading the Bible, praying, and actually walking with the Lord. If you spend any time walking with the Lord, you're going to be different. Yeah. You're going to be set apart. Like, you can't walk with God and then agree with this world. It's just not going to happen. And by the way, you can't walk with God and walk with this world at the same time. It's not possible. So here, your sacrifice for sin, the gospel, your salvation, Jesus Christ... This is right here. This is you getting saved. And now you're learning how to walk with God to be set apart. To be set apart. And if you are not willing to be set apart, then how in the world are you going to glorify God and live the life that He wants you to live? It's not possible. And most people, they just don't want to. They just don't. They're like, I just want to live the way I want to live. Do what I want to do. And that's it. And forget it. I'm going to be my own God. Fine. You can do that. You have the freedom to do that if you want. But I'm telling you, if you spend any amount of time doing that, you know what you're going to find? dissatisfaction, discontentment. It's going to be empty. It does every time. I've done it. I've spent a period of time doing the things that I want to do, and sometimes I still do. And the result is emptiness. Emptiness every single time. Because I was not made to worship myself. 
Now, people will deny that. They'll do whatever. They'll, they don't understand. And, and this, is, this is the hard part about everything. Every single person that has been created was created and designed by God to worship Him and to serve Him. Whether you believe that or not, that's completely up to you. But the sooner that you come to grips with that reality the better your life's going to be. Because every single time that I have done what God has asked me to do, and I have served Him, and I have done what He's called me to do, I have been content. I have been satisfied. I have been blessed in my heart because I know that I'm doing what He's called me to do, what He's created me to do. But if I turn around and I do the things that I want to do, and I decide to do, you know, whatever, live according to this world, live according to my desires, live according to my flesh, every time, every time, it's been emptiness. Every time. It is never satisfied. And people can deny that as much as they want, but every person knows it. They know it. Deep down, they know it. It's whether or not they're actually willing to admit it and then change the course of their life. So here, salvation. Learning to be set apart. Once you start walking with God, you learn to be set apart and sanctified by the washing of the water by the Word, praying, walking with God. Now you can enter into this place. And in this place, we have three things. This is horrible... I'm sorry. I will apologize every time I do it. Okay. What do we got here? Table of showbread. Table of showbread right here. We got our table. Candlestick. Candlestick. Amazing candlestick. And then? Altar of incense. What do these represent? Carson. Your relationship with God. Okay, how? So the, the candlestick is your... Uh, Prayer life? No. No, the incense is your prayer life. Yes, this is your prayer. Um, the, oh gosh, I don't remember the other two. No, it's been too long. This one's bread. Yeah, that is bread. There's, there's, <laughs> oh, it's the Bible. It's your reading the Bible. The B-I-B-L-E. Because um, there's six of eight, there's six rows, or no, there's six columns, I guess, but there's two rows of six, um, and that makes... 66 books of the Bible, so it's the yeah. Bible. Um, the, the Bible! Yes, yep. I don't remember what the candlestick is. Candlestick, what is it? Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. Yes, this is the Holy Spirit. Okay. Not high school, Holy Spirit. Okay, this is the Holy Spirit. So, here's the reality. The moment that you're saved, okay? Now, think about this for a second. This candle, is it always to be lit? Si, señoritas. And señoras. And... Senors. Yes. So, it is. It is always to be lit. Just like this is always to be lit. So, when you come in, your sin is atoned for. You're learning how to be set apart unto God. Now you can come into the presence of God where you can actually really learn and study the Bible. Where you can really pray and have a rich prayer life with the Lord. And it only happens through the Holy Spirit of God. Because remember, when you come in here, it is pitch black if it weren't for this candlestick. The candlestick is the only source of light that's in there. And so that Spirit, the Spirit of God, is the only thing that enlightens your time in the Word of God and in, in your prayer life. That's it. It's very important. So if you don't have the Spirit of God, it's darkness in here. And no wonder why when you try to pray, it doesn't work. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't satisfy. It doesn't, God doesn't answer any prayers necessarily. When you try to open up your Bible, you can't read and understand anything. You can't comprehend because you don't have the Spirit of God. Once you have the Spirit of God, then He enlightens everything inside of here. So this is now the innermost part of you. This is dealing with the outer part of you. Now we're moving closer towards the inside. And you've got your spirit and your soul in this area. 
And so now you're dealing with God and walking with God and learning to be set apart, sanctified, entering into his presence here properly. And now you are in, your, in the Bible, you're praying, and you have the Spirit of God to enlighten you. And now we get into the most holy place where we have the Ark of the Covenant. And now we have the mercy seat. All right. So that is a great devotional picture. And we're dealing with the innermost part of who we are. And remember, this tabernacle is just a structure. Just like your body is a temporary dwelling place. One day, God is going to give every born-again believer a brand new body, a glorified body that will never corrupt and it will never break down and we'll never have to worry about these things ever again where He will dwell in the midst of us forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. But for now, we're in a temporary dwelling place. And the only reason why this temporary dwelling place is extremely special is because of the presence of God. And He wants to dwell in us and have fellowship with us. All right. Open up your Bibles to Exodus 25. Exodus 25. Exodus 25. Now remember when we were taking a look at this, you have uh, the first time that you have an, a, an item of the tabernacle given, it's God giving the instructions about it. And then the second time is the construction of that item. And then the third time is talked about is the placement of that item inside the tabernacle. So in Exodus 25, we have God giving instructions. Exodus 25. We'll get there real quick. All right. All right, Exodus 25. And let's start off in verse 10. Here we go. And they shall make an ark of shittim wood. Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof, and a cubit and a half the height thereof. Remember that? Keep it in half. One and a half right there. See that? And thou shalt overlay it with pure gold within and without shalt thou overlay it and, and shalt make a, upon it a crown of gold round about. And thou shalt cast four rings of gold for it and put them in the four corners thereof and the two rings shall be in the one side of it and two rings in the other side of it. And thou shalt make staves or rods of shittim wood and overlay them with gold. And thou shalt put the staves into the rings by the sides of the ark that the ark may be borne with them. The staves shall be in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And thou shalt put into the ark the testimony which I shall give thee. And thou shalt make a mercy seat. So this is the top of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof. And thou shalt make two cherubims of gold of beaten work shalt thou make them in the two ends of the mercy seat. And make one cherub on the one end, and the other cherub on the other end. Even of the mercy seat shall ye make the cherubims on the two ends thereof. And the cherubims shall stretch forth their wings on high, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and their faces shall look one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubims be. And thou shalt put the mercy seat above upon the ark, and in the ark thou shalt put the testimony that I shall give thee. And there I will meet with thee, and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims which are upon the ark of the testimony of all things which I will give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. So there we have our ark, and then we have our mercy seat. Okay, so our picture. Let me get to the picture. Most holy place. We've got the ark and the mercy seat right here. So this is the picture in your guys' study sheet. It would look something very similar to this. So you have a box like that's gold within and without. It's overlaid with gold. And then on the top, you have the mercy seat. And there's a crown round about it. And you have two cherubim. Now, cherubim in the Bible are not angels, by the way. Just as a quick hit. A lot of people think that, that angels are in cherubim. And, and like Lucifer, they think that he's an angel. He's not. Lucifer is a cherub. 
So there are cherubim, there are seraphim, and then there are angels like Gabriel and Michael. So cherubim are not angels. They are celestial beings that exist in the scriptures, and their role is to surround the throne of God. You find in Ezekiel and other places, especially in Revelation, that there are four. There used to be five. The devil was the fifth. He was the anointed cherub that covered the throne of God in the front. And so you have four that now remain at the four corners of God's throne. Here he only specifies to have two. Now why God decided to do that? I don't know. You can ask him one day. But we know that we have two that are here. And they have six wings in total. They have two that are used to fly, two that cover their face, and two that cover their feet. And you'll find them in Isaiah where they cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And that's what they do, constantly. So they protect God's throne, they surround God's throne, but you have six-winged creatures that do this. Here he has only four. And the reason why he only shows four is because the other two that you can't see are actually used for flying. So they're actually flying at this moment. So that's why sometimes you see them with four, sometimes you see them with six. If they have six, they're not flying. If they have four, they are flying. It's very simple. All right, so that is our picture. And that is the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat. All right, let's hit some of these details here. All right, let's work through some of the facts and get to some of the deeper things. Okay, so first of all, the Ark's height is the same as the brazen altar in the table of showbread, which is how many cubits? One and a half, one and a half cubits. So you know that they're connected. It's the same height as the midst of the brazen altar and the table of showbread. The ark was overlaid with pure gold within and without. It was overlaid with pure gold within and without. The ark had a crown of gold around the border. And of course, a crown represents what? Royalty, deity, and so we'll talk about that in a minute. We've already covered Jesus at the table of showbread. We covered the, um, the altar of incense, the Holy Spirit, and now we've got God the Father. So we'll talk about that in a minute. The ark's reins and staves were overlaid with gold. We just read that in Exodus 25. The ark's staves were to always remain in the rings. It was always supposed to be portable. And the ark was to contain testimonies that God specified. Now, I think this is interesting. So he says, hey, you're going to build this ark, and now there are certain testimonies that you're going to put in there. And God called it that. What is a testimony? What is a testimony? Go ahead, Carson. It's like a statement or proof that something happened. Yeah, to testify of something. What were the things in the ark? Ten commandments. Ten commandments was one. Aaron's rod. Aaron's rod was another. And manna. Those three things were commanded to be in the ark. Interesting. So we're going to talk about that. Out of all the things that God did with the nation of Israel, He said, those three things, I want them in the ark. Very special to God. And so we'll talk about why it's so special to God in a little bit. All right, and then you got your mercy seat. So the mercy seat was made of pure gold. The mercy seat was to have two gold-winged cherubims, cherubims that covered the seat. The mercy seat sat on top of the ark. Again, we just read all these things in Exodus 25. And then lastly, above the mercy seat is where the presence of God would reside. Now take a look at that in Exodus 25. We just read it. Verse 22. Someone read that. Verse 22. Go ahead, Sam. And there I will meet with thee, and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims, which are upon the ark of the testimony of all things, which I will give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. So this was the focal point. This is where the presence of God would be. This is where he says, I will meet with thee from this spot. 
So as you look at this whole thing, this is super important. When you look at this, remember we talked about this being in the middle of the entire nation of Israel. You have the tabernacle. And any time that they would travel anywhere, any time they travel anywhere, the first thing to be set up was this right here. And you had uh, one clan of the Levites that would be in charge of the curtains. You'd have another clan of the Levites that would be in charge of all the instruments. You'd have another part of the Levites that would be in charge of covering all the instruments. They, they had all these roles. And this is where a lot of the Levitical law, things in Exodus and Numbers, they explain all these sorts of things. And so they would come in, and when God's presence would stop, they would then stop and they would encamp there and then they would set this whole thing up. And they would set it up in reverse order. They did this every single time. They went here, 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 here. And then, once this was in position, then everybody else in the nation of Israel would set up their camp all around. And as you read it, you find out that certain tribes were supposed to be in the north. Certain tribes were supposed to be in the south. Certain tribes were supposed to be in the east. Certain tribes were supposed to be in the west. So they even had a certain place that they were supposed to be wherever they camped. So everywhere they went, this would have always been the focal point. Always, always, always. And God wanted it to be that way to teach them a lot of different things about His character. wish we had time to go into a lot of those details. It was really cool. Alright, so now let's talk about the high priest. The high priest. So the high priest's responsibility in the most holy place, because you can't talk about the most holy place without talking about the high priest and what he was supposed to do. Alright, so let's talk about this guy. Alright, the high priest. Gorgeous robe with all that stuff that's going on there. So you got the high priest. Alright, so the high priest. The high priest's responsibility in the most holy place. Okay, so the high priest was to appear before God within the veil once in a year, once a year on the day of atonement. One time a year, that's it. Only one time a year the high priest was supposed to go in and it was on the day of atonement. We're already in Exodus 20, 25. Go over to Exodus 30 and give me a reader to go to Hebrews 9.7. Go ahead, Carson, you got it. Hebrews 9.7. Everyone else go to Exodus 30. Exodus 30, and somebody read verse 10. Exodus 30 and verse 10. Good. And Aaron shall make an atonement under the horns of it once in a year with the blood of the sin offering of atonement. Once in a year shall he make an atonement upon it throughout your generations. It is the most holy unto the Lord. Okay, most holy unto God, and it says the sin offering of atonements. So this on this day of atonement, people would come and they would offer their sin offerings, and those, and then this high priest would collect the blood from those offerings, and he was to offer it upon the mercy seat once a year. Hebrews nine seven. But into the second went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. Okay, and so this blood was to cover who? Who? Yes, his, his own sins, because remember, the high priest is a sinner too. He needs atoned for, and the sins of the people. So he represented everybody else. Okay, all right, just remember that. Get that in your head. All right, secondly, he was to offer a personal sin offering first before the sin offering for the nation. And I think I got Hebrews 5.3 on this one. Do I? Come on. Nope, I don't. Go to Hebrews 5. Go to Hebrews 5. Everyone else go to Hebrews 5. Alright, Hebrews 5. Hebrews can be a very complex book, but if you slowly work your way through, 
God gives you a lot of details that make some of the Old Testament stuff make a whole lot of sense. And, and the whole point of Hebrews is talking about how Jesus is better than everything else. And how Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament stuff. The high priests, the feasts, the sacrifices, all that stuff. So take a look at this. Verse 1. For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God. That makes sense. That he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. And this is why God did this. He didn't just, he, he decided, you know what, I've got these people. I'm going to pick out one guy. But I'm, there's a reason why I want to pick out this guy. Because this guy, he's going to minister on my behalf to my people. And this is why. Verse 2. Who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way for that he himself is, is also is compassed with infirmity. See, God wanted someone who was not perfect, that was like his people, that they were around all the time, so that way he could have compassion. But what do you see in the Gospels? What did the high priest do? Did he have compassion on the ignorant? No. Them that are out of the way? No. He did not minister on God's behalf. He was arrogant, prideful. He acted like he was God. He was better than everybody else. That's religion. That's what religion does. Religion makes you think that you are better than everybody else. And that is not what God intended. When God picked a high priest, it was not to have someone who is high and exalted, who is better than everybody else. No, this high priest was just called a high priest because he was the mediator between God and the people. So he had to be high. That's why the title's there. But this priest was like everybody else. He was supposed to be like everybody else. Because that way then you could have compassion. My goodness, there are so many times in my life that I never want to forget about what God has, has saved me from and has forgiven me from. And there are days, don't get me wrong, like I'm going to say something that might sound weird, but I'm glad that I still sin. Because it helps me. It humbles me. It helps me to remember the grace of God and why I need a Savior. And it helps me to be humble about what I'm doing in my job. Like, just because I have a title pastor doesn't mean I'm better than anybody else. I have a job to do. I have a role to play. But I need to be careful. I can't think of myself more highly than I ought to. Because in the moment that I do that, then I can stop shepherding people. And so even though it's weird, and I wish I could never sin ever again. Oh my gosh, I wish I could just shut it off completely. But I think God did it this way on purpose because the lost need to hear that there's a Savior. And what better way to hear that there's a Savior than to use sinners that have been saved and are held up by the grace of God every step of the way after salvation in order to reach people that need to be reached. That's what the high priest is supposed to do. If you never sinned, how can you, can have, how can you have compassion on people that sin? You wouldn't. You'd be arrogant. You would wish God's wrath upon them. You would not be patient with them. You would be, you would, you'd be a jerk. You would be a jerk. And that's what you find in a lot of Christian circles. People that have roles of authority and they're jerks. They have no idea how to help people, really help people. And it's wrong. Verse 3, And by reason hereof he ought, as for the people, so also for himself, to offer for sins. And no man taketh his honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. So, he offered, sins, he offered sacrifice for his own sins first, to remember that he was frail, that he was a sinner, and then he offered these sacrifices for everybody else as well. Alright, next point. He was to wash himself and wear holy linen clothing. He was supposed to be set apart and washed. In Leviticus 16, it 
tells you all those things. He was to bring two goats for a sin offering and one, and one ram for a burnt offering. He was to put burning coals. You're blank, there's coals. He was to put burning coals from the golden altar with incense on the mercy seat. I thought this was really interesting. So remember, this is our altar of incense, the golden altar. Where did these coals come from? The brazen, the brazen altar, which means it's intimately connected with your sacrifice for your sins. So when he would go in, he would take coals from here, from here, with incense in here, and put it right here. He would do that. I think that's interesting. Which means that your sin sacrifice and those coals that made it even possible for you to even be intimate with God whatsoever is deeply connected with the mercy seat and what was connected there. It's really cool. He was to make atonement for the entire tabernacle, especially the golden altar. So there's a, there's a special emphasis placed upon that golden altar. He was to fulfill his responsibilities alone. Alone. I hope you're starting to get the picture. Because when Jesus died for your sins, he did it alone. He did it alone. Look at this verse. Oh, this is cool. Leviticus 16, 17. And there shall be no man in the tabernacle of the congregation when he goeth in to make an atonement in the holy place until he come out and have made an atonement for himself and for his household and for all the congregation of Israel. You know how freaky this would have been? So this whole area, usually there are priests doing their, doing their thing. And when it was on the Day of Atonement, it was completely emptied out. And now just imagine, you're in the position of the high priest. Okay, I'm going into the presence of God, which means I could literally be struck dead. If I do this wrong... I'm a dead man. I'm a dead man. And there's no one in here with you. No one. So you collect all the blood from the, uh, the, the, the sacrifices for this, uh, the sin offering for atonement. You carry them here. Wash your hands and your feet. You carry them in here. How you been here? I'd be praying. That's for sure. <laughs> and then he goes in past the second curtain. This is the first curtain. He goes past the second curtain. And in here, there's no light. This curtain is so thick, and on top and around and everything, there's no light coming in. The only light that's available in here is by the presence of God Himself. So He would have come in here, God said, I'm going to be there on the Day of Atonement. So God's presence would have been there. And He would have taken coals and incense from here, offered it here, and then offered the blood upon here. But the moment they walked in there, I mean, I'm, I'm, I just put myself in this, that situation. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'd be freaked out. Like, I would be a dead man. I feel like I would be a dead man. And can you imagine if somebody did it wrong and they were struck dead, how would they find out? They tied a rope around there. Well, that's tradition. We don't really know if they did that or not. It doesn't say that in the scriptures anywhere. They just have to trip on him the next time? Or he wouldn't be there. Yeah. God is a consuming fire. I mean, just think about it. You just start playing this stuff out. See, this is what people don't do. They don't work this stuff out in their head logically. The Bible's real. So you start working some of this stuff out, and you're like, oh my gosh. Like, he could have been struck dead. I mean, the only way that you would have known that he did something wrong is if the next day came and he wasn't among anyone. And they would have to anoint another high priest. And can you imagine that high priest? <laughs> I mean, this is serious business. Once a year, God was saying, okay, this is it. You got to do it. And you got to do it according to everything that I, I told you to do. All right, next point here. 
He was to be set. He was to set free the scapegoat by the hands of a fit man. So there was a scapegoat that represented the sins of the nation of Israel being released out into the wilderness. He was to wash and put his own clothes back on when finished atoning. He was to offer the burnt offering for himself and the people on the brazen altar. So this is actually a secondary offering. So once he had finished up his duties in here, he put back on his old clothes and he went back out here and offered another sacrifice. I thought this was kind of cool. So not only did they start the sacrifice here, work his way in, but now after meeting with God, he comes back out and offers a sacrifice here before leaving. I think that's really interesting. There's a lot that can be said there about dealing with your sin. A lot that could be said there. Let's just keep going. We'll get there. Okay. And then he was to have someone burn the remnants of the sin offering for himself and the people outside the camp and then wash their clothes with and flesh in water. Now, before you turn the page, i got a couple extra notes here in Hebrews 5 that I want to show you. Okay. So we just read in verse 4 in Hebrews 5. Take a look at it again. And no man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God... He, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. So the high priest was called of God. It was not a chosen occupation. This is not something that a little boy running around in Israel would be like, I'd like to be the high priest one day. Like, it didn't work out like that. That's not how it happened. In fact, you notice in the Old Testament, when certain people stood up to say, hey, we deserve that role, God struck them dead. Or actually, literally swallowed them up in the earth. That's what he did with the sons of Korah. That's exactly what happened. So this was something that God chose. And when it comes to these sorts of roles that are, that are played, man, God has to choose you. This is not something that you choose for yourself. That is, that is major. So for, me, for many of you that might feel like God may call you into full-time ministry, God has to call you. God has to call you. You cannot call yourself. Now, I think you should have the desire. I think this is something that people should, should want to do. I think Paul even said that when it comes to the qualifications for leadership within a church. He said, if someone desires that work, it's a good thing. So that's a good thing. But here's the deal. God has to call you. He has to make it happen, not you. And I will tell you, even in my own life, there are times where I could have made it happen. There are times where things were offered to me to enter into pastoral ministry way before I knew that it was time for me to do it. And I'm so glad that God helped me to make a wise choice and to wait. And I'm glad that I waited. And so if you feel that God has called you into full-time ministry, whether it's missions or maybe a missionary's wife or a pastor's wife or a pastor one day, that's awesome. Take your time. Make sure God proves that out. And if you're curious about what God has to do in order to make that clear to you, come and talk to me and we'll talk more about it. It's a very good conversation. Okay. Here's another. i got two more things. The high priest was to be taken from among men to make reconciliation for men that he might be able to be compassionate minister. And we already talked a little bit about that. Able to relate to the infirmities of the people. He was supposed to be that mediator. He's supposed to have a heart for the people. But unfortunately, you don't find that in the scriptures. And then lastly, before we move on, through the atonement of Jesus' death and his resurrection, Jesus became a new high priest under a new law and entered into the veil on our behalf and eternally applied his blood to the mercy seat in the presence of God. Now this is really cool. So this should really start helping come together. Go to Hebrews 7. Hebrews 7. Alright, Hebrews 7. And let's start off in... Oh, there's so much that's here. I wish we could just read the whole stinking chapter. We just don't have time. Let's start off in uh, verse 20. 
21. Okay. So Jesus is the high priest. He is better than all the other priests. And so he's going to make this point. Verse 21. For those priests that was before Jesus were made without an oath, but this Jesus with an oath by him that said unto him, The Lord swear and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So when it came to the high priest, just as kind of a, a pause for a second. When they came to the high priest, there came a point where the high priest died. And when the high priest died, they had to replace with the new high priest. Well, Jesus, now, as the priest, when he died, technically, you should have replaced him with a new high priest. But, catch, three days later, he kind of rose from the dead. So since he rose from the dead, there's no need to have a new high priest. So Jesus is forever and always the high priest on our behalf, and even on behalf of the nation of Israel. So that's really cool. So that's all he's saying here. Verse 22. By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. And they truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death because they all died. But this man, Jesus, because he continueth forever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. I love this about my Savior. He is able to not just save me, but he is able to save me to the uttermost. You know what the uttermost is? Define the uttermost for me. Carson, give it a shot. The furthest and most inaccessible parts of something? Yeah. So where is the end of the uttermost? There isn't one. So not only has He saved me from my sins, but He saved me to the uttermost. There is no end. This is why when God talks about it, the east from the west, like if you were to keep traveling east, you just keep traveling east. Like it never stops. So he separated my sins as far as the east is from west. Well, how far is the east from the west? It doesn't touch. Exactly. It never ends. It never ends. And I need a Savior that can save me like that. And so that's why he's ever, he's able to, to make intercession. He, he ever lives to make intercession for them. And I love that. Verse 26. For such Jesus and high priest became us. So God became like us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. For the law maketh men high priests which have infirmity, but the word of the oath which was since the law maketh the Son who is consecrated forevermore. So not only, and this is amazing, so not only, this is where it gets kind of cool, Jesus shed His blood as my sin atonement. And then He took His own blood that He shed as the high priest. So He's the sacrifice, and He is also my high priest. And He took it into the veil and laid it before God to atone for me. That is incredible. That is absolutely incredible. And he did it once. He only had to do it once, and that's it. All right, let's finish it out. Spiritual truths for our admonition and learning. Okay. All right, pure gold represents divinity, holiness, and things of high value. This is what we've talked about for the holy place and the most holy place. As the ark, God is consistent inside and out. Malachi 3.6, that I am the Lord, I change 
not. So when it talks about the ark being gold inside and out, God is consistent inside and out. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The crown indicates royalty and authority. This would be God the Father. God the Father. So the crown around the ark represents God the Father. Remember, we had Jesus. There's a crown here. Holy Spirit, there's a crown here. And there's a crown here. So that's how you have the Trinity. Then you have God the Father in charge. Second in command is Jesus. And then thirdly is the Holy Spirit. And that's the hierarchy of the Trinity that you find in the Scriptures. Okay, the ark and the mercy seat were portable until 1 Kings 8.8. What happened in 1 Kings 8.8? Anybody know? I mean, it's 1 Kings 8. How could you not know that? 1 Kings 8.8? I mean, it's the building of the temple. So by the time they removed, there was no more tabernacle, and they actually built the temple. The ark was put in the temple, and then it stayed there. So it was made to be portable until 1 Kings 8.8, where they ended up doing that. Okay, I wanted to get to this one. The three items in the ark are a type of the gospel. A type of the gospel. Let's take a look at some of these passages. Let's go over to Acts 14. Acts 14. So God specifically said that He wanted these three things inside the ark. And the first one we're going to talk about is the manna. Acts 14. Okay, verse 17. <laughs> Nevertheless, He left not Himself without witness. God never leaves Himself without witness, without a testimony. In that he did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. Now, this is that picture of the manna, because where did manna come from? It came from heaven. And it landed on the ground, and it was a little seed. And God gave it to him for meat. And he provided that for him the entire time that they're in the wilderness. This is like the gospel. God provides himself with a witness, and it is all over the place. It is all over the place. And we know this, and we talk about this all the time, but when it comes to the gospel, it benefits everybody. When it comes to the gospel, I mean, it can change, it can change not only any, everyone's eternity, but it has the power to just get rid of sin in general. Like, when you get the gospel out there, people are convicted. They are. All the time. And they need to be reminded of the goodness of God. Because it's the goodness of God that leads us under repentance. Romans 2 talks about that. Romans 1 talks about that. And so the power of the gospel is very, very important. And manna is such a beautiful picture of the gospel. More specifically, it is a picture of Jesus as the bread of life and the application that we can take from God's word. But God never leaves, him, leaves himself without witness. And he gives us these things. And like manna came down from heaven, that rain from heaven. That's what that is. He gave us rain from heaven, manna, and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. That is that picture of manna, and it is a picture of the gospel. Go over to John 16. This one is a great verse for the Ten Commandments. John 16. The Ten Commandments are in the ark. John 16, take a look at verse 8. And when He is come, talking about the Spirit of God, He will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because they believe not on Me. Of righteousness because I go to My Father and you see Me no more. Of judgment because the Prince of this world is judged. I have yet many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. And that's exactly what the law of God does. The Word of God convicts this world of sin and of righteousness and judgment. It calls out what sin is. It shows you the things that are right. 
and it tells you that judgment's coming. And that's exactly what the Ten Commandments did for the nation of Israel. And they would have known that that's in there. I mean, think about even the history of the nation of Israel when they got the Ten Commandments. What happened the first time they got the Ten Commandments? Moses was up on the mountain for how many days? Forty days. He comes down and what they be doing? A whole lot of sand. That's what they be doing down in the camp, right? And Moses gets miffed, more or less. <laughs> and he throws those tables of stone and breaks them. He's so mad. God wants to wipe them out. Totally wipe them out. I mean, I'm telling you, I wouldn't have forgotten that moment. I wouldn't have forgotten that. God on fire on top of this mountain, burning this mountain. Moses comes down and he's so ticked, he throws those things and then he goes back up and he has to make another copy. And he writes his own copy on that one. This copy that was broken was actually written by the finger of God. You can read that in Exodus. God wrote those ones down. Now when Moses goes back up, the copy that's made, Moses writes that down. And he brings it back down and that's what gets put in the ark. Alright, and then thirdly, you have the budded rod. A budded rod. Um, and then everyone else go to 1 Timothy 2.5. Give me a reader for Exodus 34. Okay, go to Exodus 34 verse 9. Everyone else go to 1 Timothy 2. 1 Timothy 2. First Timothy 2. Alright, and then we have the rod that budded. So Dustin's going to read that one. So listen to the verse Dustin's going to read. And he said, If now I have found grace in thy sight, O Lord, let let my Lord, I pray thee, go among us, for it is the stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for thine inheritance. Okay. This rod represented the grace of God. Because remember, tell me about the rod. We, we talked about it already. Some of you already know this. Tell me about the rod. How is it a picture of the resurrection? So were you asking what the rod is or how is it Both. So, like, when the other tribes were challenging Aaron's authority, yeah. God just had them set all their rods aside and said, whichever one was, that's my priest. Right. And so, this rod was, at first, dead. That's what a rod is. It's just a stick. It might be beautiful, but it's just a stick. And so, you had the 12 tribes lay up their stick, and then one began to bud. It wasn't even planted in anything. It had no roots. And all of a sudden it comes to life. Yeah, resurrection. And not only did it bud, but it yielded fruit. almonds. So yeah, it's a type of fruit. Sure. Almonds. It did. And remember that almonds was connected with this because this was made of almonds and buds. Remember? Okay. So the Holy Spirit, picture the resurrection. You have this rod that now buds. It's a picture of the gospel. We were dead and we need the grace of God in our lives in order to bring this new life out of us and to give us fruit or else it's not going to happen. And if you've never come to a spot where you've trusted Jesus as your Savior, you are dead. You're a dead rod and there's no hope for you. There's none outside of Jesus Christ. You need to accept Him as your Savior. Understand that He is that blood sacrifice offered for you and then His blood was taken into the most holy place on your behalf to present it before God to make atonement for your soul. And then lastly, I'd everyone else turn to 1 Timothy 2. The last thing about the ark, now you had those three items that were in the ark, but then this was placed on top. This was placed on top. That blood, that blood of atonement. 1 Timothy 2 and verse 5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Now, that blood that was offered upon that mercy seat, God would accept that and it would be completely gone. And here, Jesus was offered once for all, once for all for you. So when it comes to the most holy place, 
There's not very many practical life applications like there are with the other ones when it comes to your walk with God. Because remember, this part of you, like this is the part that we do, right? We need to accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, the gospel. We need to wash our hands and our feet daily and be sanctified and set apart. We need to spend time and get some spiritual sustenance through the Word of God. Spend time in prayer to God and have that, that, that burning altar of incense carry our prayers up to the Lord through the power of the Holy Spirit that enlightens all these things. This is our part right here. But the innermost part of who you are, the innermost part of who you are, this is where Jesus went. He knows you. He knows you better than anybody else. He sees you the deepest, the darkest parts of you more than anybody else. He knows you better than you know you. And this is what gives me great security. Now, that may freak you out. And it freaks you out, you just never thought about it before. But after it's settled in your heart, you know what it's done for me? It's given me great peace in my heart. Because God knows me through and through, and yet He still died for me, and He still accepts me for who I am. That is incredible. That is absolutely incredible. Like this part of me, I've not even gone there. Like I don't even know this part of me. I don't. And yet this is where Jesus went and offered His blood for me to atone for my soul. And this is why Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10 talks about that the heart is evil and desperately wicked. Who can know it? You can't know it. The depths of your heart are so deceitful and wicked that there's no way that you can know it. There's no way. Now, you can experience the outflowing of it, but you can't know the depths of who you are, really. But then the next verse says, I, the Lord, try the reins. I know the heart. I know it. And I give to every man according to his ways and according to his doings. God sees this part of every single human person, every human being, every person. And He died and He offered His blood as an atonement for every single person if they're willing to receive it. And that is probably the best application we can have with this one. And so for me, in my life, especially over the last 48 hours, you know what I've needed to remember about who I am as a sinner in the presence of God? I need to remember that He died for me. I need to remember that He shed His blood for me. And now my responsibility is to sanctify myself to purify myself from all filthiness of the flesh and perfecting holiness and the fear of God. And I need to spend time with God. I need to hear His voice. I need to be enlightened by His Spirit and be led by His Spirit. I need to hear His voice. He needs to hear mine. Because Jesus already went through in the presence of God and offered His blood for me. And as I remember that, I walk out of the presence of God and I need to remember I'm a sinner. I need to be set apart. And I need to make sure that I'm making my purity a priority. And I need to remember the gospel. Because as I go out into the world, I need to bring people. I need to bring people and they need to understand that their sins need atoned for. And once this happens in their life, now discipleship can begin. And they can learn how to wash their hands and their feet. And they need to learn how, through the Spirit of God, to spend time with God in His Word and in prayer so they can go and do the exact same thing. And that's really all this is. It's very simple. How to walk with God. God's given us this picture in the Old Testament as a type for us to follow after because everyone needs to be restored. Everybody. God deserves to be worshipped in every single person's tabernacle. Every single person. 
So let me ask you a question as we end things today. Where are you at today? Where are you at today? What part of this are you at? Like if you were to be able to take a look at your life and say, you know what, if I evaluate where I'm at right here, yeah, I know that I'm saved, but I'm not really doing a good job of setting myself apart. I'm just not. You know, I try to go in here and read the scriptures and pray and stuff like that. And I know that I have the Spirit of God, but I'm just not getting anything out of it. Well, then you need to take care of this stuff. You need to remember what God has done for you, and you need to, you need to focus on this. And there's some really good verses that I could even give you. If you're interested, i got some good verses, even ones that I've looked up over the past week, that would be good for this part of you. And you can go back to some of the lessons and read some of this stuff and listen to it. Or maybe you're not even here at all. You're still outside the camp. You're maybe still outside the camp. You've never accepted Christ as your Savior. You're outside of it. And you have no idea what it even means to walk with God or be in the presence of God. And that's something you need to take care of right here. And maybe you're doing these two things. And if you're doing these two things, God will draw you into here and you'll start to do some of this stuff. But this is where discipleship really happens, right here. This is where it really happens. Spending time watching somebody else as they walk with God and learning how to walk with God yourself. So that is our, our challenge for today. And so with that said, let's go ahead and pray. And if you've got any questions, please do not hesitate to let us know afterward. So Father, thank you so much for our opportunity today to open up your word. And I want to thank you for the reminders that you have really even helped me out with this past week, working through this lesson. And, um, and I'm sorry for, for who I am at the very core. And, um, and I am so thankful, God, that you still love me the same. And uh, it's not an excuse for my sin at all. Um, but I'm just very thankful that you have not given up on me. I know that I probably would have given up on myself a long time ago. But you desire to use us in this world as long as you would have us here. And I pray that we would be faithful. So thank you again for these great reminders. I pray we'd take the things you convicted us of and that we would be obedient. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.